Love you all so very much, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. And you're making me feel lonely up here. Let me try that again. Merry Christmas. There we go. All right. Hey, that was way better than I even thought. And, uh, and Merry Christmas to those of you joining us online, uh, sometimes even people out of the state, sometimes people in hospital beds. We're very grateful that we can be where you are right there, and, uh, and we hope that you are spiritually nourished as well in the condition that you are in. You can be turning your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of John, the Gospel according to John. And when you get to that book, you can just leave yourself there in chapter 1. Simple enough. Very early there in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is where you'll find that book, and you can leave yourself at chapter 1. We will be there in a moment. If we were to just take, uh, say, four of you on the way out today, let's say just hypothetically that on the way out, uh, four people were selected, and those four people were given a pen and a paper to write something down. And if you are given the task of writing down the things that you heard and saw in this room today, uh, undoubtedly, those four accounts would be different. They'd be very different. Uh, some of you, if out of the collection of four people, one person may give a description of the room uh, and may give a lot of detail of the details of the room. Another person may give more of the detail of perhaps the decorations that are up that you see. Uh, some people may give most of the detail to the sermon that they heard. Some people may not talk anything about the building or the decorations or the sermon. They may talk more about the people that they spoke to. You would find, if people were acting honestly, you would find much difference as there ought to be. And when it comes to the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that their gospel accounts, but particularly their accounts of Christmas, of the Christmas story, we find this same kind of variance as God used them in their own personalities by their own hand being inspired of the Holy Spirit. We find that there's much difference in the account of Christmas given by the four gospel writers. For example, in the book of Matthew, you have the genealogy of Christ you have the story of these wise men traveling from a far land to come and see the newborn king, which by the time they got there, we know would have not, he would have not been a newborn, probably a couple years old at that point. But we see that story. We also know of the escape into Egypt that Mary and Joseph did when Herod was going about killing the babies the way that he was. They escaped into Egypt. Those details are in the book of Matthew. The book of Mark really doesn't include any of those details. It really pretty much starts right out of the gate with the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, that's a common, perhaps the most common gospel that we'll have during this Christmas season that people are reading, uh, and for good reason. It has much detail about that Christmas story. We have the birth of John the Baptist being announced to uh, Zacharias, his father. We have the birth of Jesus being announced to Mary. You have the very well-known account in Luke chapter 2 of the birth of Christ, the shepherds seeing the angels by night in that field. You've got the awesome stories of Simeon and Anna after they take Jesus into the temple. And those two people, Anna, who sees Jesus and tells of this baby, of anyone looking for salvation, she tells of that baby Jesus. You've got Simeon, whom the Holy Spirit had said that he would not taste death until he saw the Lord's salvation and then he sees the Christ. This eight-day-old baby, and he says, now the Lord is letting his servant depart in peace. You have those awesome, 
awesome stories about Christmas in those Gospels. But when you get to John, the Gospel of John, it gives us a behind-the-scenes perspective. And this Gospel is commonly overlooked, especially during the Christmas season. It gives us the -the behind-the-curtain happenings that make the other things possible. If you were to go to a play and you'd sit down there in the seat and you would see the stage and you would see the actors and the makeup and the costumes and the proper lighting and you would see everything displayed out as it is going along with what the script writer has ordained to be the play. But if you got up from your chair and you walked backstage... You would see all of the happenings behind the curtain. You would see everything happening behind the stage that makes everything up front possible. You would see people in the makeup chair. You would see people tailoring the costumes. You would see everything happening behind the scenes to make what you see visible on display possible. And it's almost as if you see in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke this brilliant display of Christmas, this brilliant display of Christ coming into the world. But when you get to the book of John, when you get to the gospel according to John, you see the behind the curtain, the things that happened behind the scenes that made it all possible. So our goal for this morning is very simple. It's to simply understand Christmas better. It's to look behind the scenes of Christmas and to know rightly why we can say Merry Christmas. Why don't we just say other things like prosperous Christmas or happy Christmas or healthy Christmas? We say Merry Christmas. Why do we say Merry Christmas? Why is it a Merry Christmas? We're going to look behind the scenes and see what we can know from the gospel according to John. Now, what can we say about the gospel of John? What are the things that we know about it? We know that the apostle John was one of the younger apostles, perhaps the youngest if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, we know that he was one of the fishermen, one of the number of fishermen that Jesus called into ministry, called into following him. And we know that John was an eyewitness. He was there. He watched Jesus do ministry. He knew him personally. He saw it. He heard it. But he didn't just have any understanding. He had a special understanding. John was in that core group with Peter and James that were pulled in to see certain things that the other disciples did not see. John was there when the transfiguration happened. He saw it. He was there. John was there when Peter's mother-in-law was healed. The other disciples didn't see that. John saw that. When the daughter of the synagogue ruler was healed, John was there. When they sat at the Lord's table... That night before he was betrayed, John was the one leaning against Jesus physically. His body was leaning against the body of Christ because he was that close with him. John was there when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus told the disciples to stay in one spot, but Peter, James, and John, he had come one step further. John was there. John was the one that was standing at the cross. We kind of have a picture that the other disciples had somewhat scattered, but John was standing there close enough that one of the last things that Jesus did before he gave up his spirit was that he saw his mother, Mary, his earthly mother, standing there, and he arranged for her earthly care to be taken care of. He says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. He arranged for John, this disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to take care of his mother. So 
We also know that this was written somewhere in the range of 80 to 90 A.D., 80 to 90 years after the time of Christ. The other Gospels are understood to have been written by this point. And John is an old man. He's got a gray beard. He's got those crow's feet wrinkles by his eyes. He's an old man. It's thought, church tradition tells us that he was leading the church at Ephesus at the time. Uh, he's an old man. He, was, he knew Christ. He was there. He saw it. He knew him. He knew what the body of Christ was like. He, he had put his head to lean against the chest and shoulder of Jesus at the Lord's table. He was there. We also know that this old man, very likely doing wonderful things for the kingdom of God, it was just before he was getting ready to get exiled. If he was an old man doing nothing, he wouldn't have been exiled. But by God's sovereignty, he uses John to write the Gospel of John just before getting exiled to the island of Patmos where God would give him the revelation that we have at the very end of our Bibles. John was there. And this old man who knew Christ and very likely was doing some stuff for the kingdom of God, enough to get him exiled. He sits down and... By the Holy Spirit of God, in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Somebody say amen. So let's dive in and let's look at the behind the scenes of Christmas. One of the most common questions that comes up when this introduction of the Gospel of John is, why does John use this word, word, as the name for Jesus, and what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Okay, so this word, word, that John uses, it has a Greek origin, and this word would be understood to be the word logos, or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. Now, this is an interesting word, this old Greek word logos, that John uses in this portion, in this introduction, referencing Jesus as the word, it's a very interesting word because it has predominantly two historical, very prominent at that time, historical understandings. One of the understandings of this word logos was a Jewish understanding. And the Jewish understanding of the word logos was to know God in a very personal sense. That word of God. They saw that word as understanding God in a very personal kind of way. And here's what I mean by that. In Exodus 19, 17, your Bibles likely say something very similar to this. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and stood at the foot of the mountain. So, your Bibles say that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. Now, when in our Bibles, the understanding is that they were meeting with the very personal God. In our language, that would simply mean to say God. You go out to meet 
God. That's who the person that you are meeting. But it's very interesting in very old Hebrew and very old Hebrew Bibles that were written in the very old versions of the Torah that are seen today, the word used there is the word of God. Because just to say God was not the most personal sense. The most personal sense was to use this kind of word, logos, the word of God. To understand the word of someone was to know them personally in the Jewish sense. So John using this word, word, to reference Christ had a very personal meaning to it. But that was only one of the historical understandings. The other historical understanding was a very Greek kind of understanding. And this word logos, they understood to mean something of logical sense and perfect order. If you know your history well, you'll know that in this time period, the Greek philosophers are really gaining lots of momentum, and they're writing lots of the things that they are thinking about. Scribes became very popular. That became a very popular profession in that day and age. So people were writing much of the things that they were thinking about and talking about. And for them, it was something of very logical sense and order. To have the logos, to have the written word, was to be able to make perfect clarity sense of something. So when John says something like, in the beginning was the Word, it meant something both very personal and also something that made complete sense and complete order of everything. To this both Jewish and Greek audience that he's writing to, he's saying very clear right out of the gate that this Word that I'm referencing, the name for Christ, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Using this word, Word, for Christ meant something to John saying, I knew Him personally. This Word, I knew Him. I saw Him. I touched His body. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. And not only that, it doesn't just mean something personal. It means it, logos. It means something to make total sense, to be perfectly logical and, and full of order. John was very clear of who it was that Christ was to him. So it gives us some context then as we go back to verse 1. As we see some things, we know what John was referencing. We know who John was referencing here in the Word. And then as we look at John 1, verse 1, it tells us some things about Christ. It tells us some things that we know about Him. The first thing it tells us is that Jesus existed in the beginning. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. This man, Jesus, whom was both a personal relationship with John, as well as the thing, as well as the one that made everything make sense to John, that created all perfect order, that could be totally trusted, that person, Jesus, existed in the beginning. John ties verse 1 of John chapter 1 to Genesis verse 1 chapter 1. In the beginning, God. John says he was there. The Word was there in Genesis 1.1 when it says, In the beginning, God, that's the Jesus that I know. That's the Jesus that I know personally. That's the Jesus that makes all things make sense. He was there in the beginning. Not only was he there in the beginning, but he was also part of the Trinity at the beginning. Moving on there in verse 1 of John chapter 1, verse 1. And the Word was with God. He then ties this next piece of the sentence to Genesis 1.26, 
which we know that says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. John says not only was he there in the beginning, he was part of the Trinity in the beginning. In the very beginning, John says he's connecting this word whom he knew personally, who made perfect sense of all creation for John. Not only was he in the beginning, existing in the beginning, but he was part of the Trinity in the beginning as well. We also know that Jesus, John was convinced that Jesus was God in the beginning. There in verse 1 of John chapter 1, and the word was God. Preacher, what in the world does this all have to do with Christmas? Well, take these understandings that Jesus existed in the beginning, that Jesus was part of the Trinity in the beginning, and that Jesus was God in the beginning. It puts a whole new light when you read Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which say, So it was that while, they, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we are going into this Christmas season. And perhaps your family, like mine, does. You'll even do like a Jesus birthday cake kind of a thing if you've got kids. But, but don't forget the truth, the behind-the-scenes understanding that is made clear in the Gospel of John that he was there in the beginning. This was not his first, this was his entry into the world, but this was not his entry into existence. He was there at the beginning. He was God at the beginning. He was part of the Trinity at the very, very beginning. So our first point this morning Christmas represents Jesus' willful dethronement. Christmas represents Jesus' willful dethronement. Parents, teach this to your kids. Grandparents, teach this to your grandchildren. This was not just being born. This was the King of Heaven taking off the crown. This was the King of Heaven taking the robe off. This was the King of Heaven taking Himself out of an environment where there is angelic praise 24-7 non-stop. Christmas represents Jesus' willful dethronement. So we've looked behind the curtain just a little bit here. And you might ask yourself, why is this joyful for us? What is the connection between this and Christmas being merry for you and I? I can remember one of the sweetest sounds when I was a kid. If, um, if you were a kid and you were sick, and I grew up, lots of animals on the farm, many other siblings, and if you were sick, the idea of having that aching body and the chills and just feeling terrible and you're curled up in bed, the idea of having to get out of bed in the dead middle of winter to go feed a bunch of animals... And at that point in time, we hadn't trenched water from the house down to the barn, so you have to carry buckets and empty milk jugs that we cleaned out to carry water down to the animals. And, and that was just a horrible thought when you were so sick and you thought you had to go out in the blistering cold, just awful, awful thought when it's real windy like it was out here yesterday, all the rest. It, it's just a horrible thought. And the sweetest sound ever was when one of your brothers would call, holler up the stair, stairs and say, just stay in bed. I've got my boots on, I'm already headed down, I'll take care of your chores for you. Oh, for those of you that know what I'm talking about, I can see your smiling faces right now. You just lay back down, curl up, and just stay in the warm bed and let your body continue to recover. And can I just tell you, church, 
that Christ dethroning himself, what Christmas represents and Jesus willfully dethroning himself, it was much more meaningful than him just putting the work boots on to go set himself in motion to take care of the chores for you and I. When Jesus surveyed our sinful condition, he didn't just put the work boots on, he put a body on. And what Christmas reminds you and I is him saying, I've already put the body on, I've already put myself in motion to be the sacrificial lamb of the people. Your sinful, sick condition is going to be okay. I'm going to take care of it. Somebody say amen if you understand what I'm preaching this morning. It's an awesome thing that he's done. This is why Christmas for you and I is not just happy Christmas or healthy Christmas. It's Merry Christmas. It's a Merry Christmas because the sacrificial lamb of heaven has come and he's put the body on. He's come to do the work that was necessary to save us. And I'm thankful for that. And we see this in the Gospel of John, the behind-the-scenes perspective of Christmas. Look to verse 3, if you would. And verse 3 basically just solidifies the point already made. It further connects what John is saying in the very beginning to the Genesis account. All things, it says there in verse 3, were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. just makes it even stronger, the point that Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the one that marked the line of the shore. He was the one that spoke these things into existence. Nothing, none of those things were made unless it was made through him. So here you have John. This old man with those crow's feet wrinkles by his eyes. And he's got the gray beard and he, he knew what it was like to walk with Jesus. And he references him as the logos, as this word that makes perfect personal sense of knowing him personally, but makes perfect sense in logic and order of understanding why everything is the way that it is. And he says some things about that word, about that logos. He says that he's the word of God. He's, he's the beginning. He was in the beginning as the word. He was there at the beginning. He is God. He was there with the Trinity at the very, very beginning. All things were made through him. Christmas is him willfully dethroning himself to accomplish what it was that was necessary on our behalf. So we've seen that. If you understand it, say amen. And next, John shows us another element, another behind-the-scenes element of Christmas. Look to verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So let's just pause right there as we understand the connection between what we're seeing here behind the stage with John and what we're seeing throughout the rest of the Gospels. John is saying that Jesus brought this life that was the light of men. Jesus is bringing the thing that was needed. When Jesus cast off his heavenly glory and puts on a human body like you and I to come be this sacrificial lamb. He brought with him the thing that was needed, which was redemption. He brought with him the thing that was needed, which was to be able to take upon himself all the judgment of God against our sin. He brought with him the very thing that mankind, that humankind needed. And look to verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So Jesus brings with him the thing that's needed, John says. 
And then as you see the Christmas story play out in the other Gospels, you see examples of that light that Jesus brought with him being the thing that was needed for humanity. You see examples of people both rejecting and accepting that light. You see Anna and Simeon in the temple who they accepted the light faithful in the temple gives us a picture of faithful people who see Jesus and says this is the Messiah the Son of God could you imagine eight day old baby Jesus this is the one through whom God's going to bring salvation to his people they accepted it they joyfully accepted the shepherds in the field they saw that angelic display of worship they loved what they saw they went and saw and found the baby just like the angels had said and then they returned to their fields rejoicing and exceedingly glad because they saw the light they saw jesus bringing the thing that was necessary for the people but you also see the flip side of that You see people rejecting that light. And the light shines in the darkness, verse 4 of John says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other places of Scripture, it says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. And we see examples of those things. You see examples of of that in Herod who thought that this Jewish king was going to rise up against him and therefore he tries to stomp out, he kills all the baby boys ages two and under is what Herod carried out, that awful, awful, heinous thing that he carried out. You think of the innkeeper. The Bible never really says anything about the innkeeper. It just says that the inn was full. But I imagine, I don't know for certain, but I imagine that there was an innkeeper there announcing to Mary and Joseph that there is no room for them in this inn. Perhaps there was some kind of sign that just depicted like a vacancy or not at a hotel. But if there was indeed an innkeeper there, it just makes you think to yourself like, man, how did they miss it? How did they miss Why did Herod not think to himself that, Jesus is bringing the thing that mankind needs and he's not going to do anything other than go and worship. He's going to try and stomp out this good work of God. And and you see these examples of people, darkness, not understanding the light, not understanding, not comprehending the light that Jesus was bringing the thing that was absolutely needed. So our second point this morning, Christmas represents... Jesus bringing the redemption humanity needed. Christmas represents Jesus bringing the redemption that we needed. Somebody say amen. Parents, teach this to your children. Grandparents, teach this to your grandchildren. Teach them that Christmas represents Jesus' willful dethronement. Teach them that Christmas represents Jesus bringing this redemption that humanity needed, the thing that we needed. He came as the rescuer, church. That's good news. Somebody say yes. And you have John, this old man with crow's feet wrinkles by his eyes and this gray beard. And he's being used of God and will continue to be used of God. And he's being used so much of God that he's getting ready to be exiled to this work camp, Patmos Island. And And the Holy Spirit of God draws him to write these things about God. He knew God. He saw God as this personal God. He knew God was not just a personal God, but also the God that makes everything make sense. And it lets us know from the things that he wrote that before that first Christmas, he was king in heaven. And it was a willful dethronement. That Christmas represents him entering into the world. His entry into the world to bring the thing that humanity needed and we know that there were people that 
saw this light, but we know that there was darkness that did not comprehend it. And you think to yourself, man, how? How? How does someone not comprehend it? And maybe you've even thought in reference to people that you know personally, how, how does this person, how, how could you not be so drawn to the person of Christ? How could you not just be in love with the gospel? How, isn't it just, I mean, it's the most amazing story ever that no one would have ever thought up themselves to conjure up some story that, that the king of the universe that needed nothing from a sinful humanity, that he would come and be the rescuer, redeemer, and lover of their soul. Like, what a beautiful, heartwarming drawing to that kind of thing. How could anybody reject that? But John tells us, and if you know your Bibles, you'll know John 3, 19. And you remember this is when Jesus is speaking with the Pharisee named Nicodemus. When he says, and this is the condemnation. This explains it, church. This explains why people reject light. Why people back then, like Herod, and why people today reject Christ. This explains it right here. And this is the condemnation, Jesus says. That the light has come into the world... And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. This, dear friends, it explains some things, and it makes some things in our world crystal, crystal clear. It absolutely explains why very few preachers preach light anymore, is because the heart of man loves darkness instead. It absolutely explains why Joel Osteen doesn't preach the gospel because he's got a place full of people that love darkness. And he's preaching what people love. There are people all over the place that are preaching what people love, which is darkness. They choose darkness rather than light. Jesus said it himself because their deeds are evil. It explains why preachers don't preach light commonly. And it explains perfectly clear why people in the world and many, many deceived people inside of churches don't like it when light is preached. It perfectly explains those things. So has that been you? Have you heard the gospel preached this morning to understand some of the backstory, some of the behind-the-scenes actions of Christmas that make it understand of why all the things played out the way that they do? Because if you have loved darkness, if, 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 if you're, the hair on the back of your neck bristles and you don't like it when you hear light preached, if you have loved darkness rather than light, if you have loved your comfort rather than light, if you have loved your idea of Christianity rather than the true devoted walk of a believer whose heart has been changed by Almighty God, if that has been you, dear friend, this morning, dear friend joining us online, then I've got good news for you. Because all those years ago, there was a man named John. He had wrinkles by his eyes. He was an old man. And he knew the Savior. He knew him personally. He referenced him as someone that he knew personally. He referenced him as someone who made perfect sense of all the things that were going on. And he said that in the beginning, he was the Word. He was there at the beginning. It wasn't as if Christmas was an action that was out of control and Jesus didn't know it was going to... No, it was perfectly planned. It was a willful dethronement. It represents Him bringing the redemption that we needed. And it's the redemption that He offers to all mankind. It's the redemption that is I'm preaching to you today. 
It's the redemption that many people in this room have been deceived into thinking they have been recipients of. It's the redemption that you have been tricked by the devil himself into thinking that you are a partaker of this redemption. And you are, in fact, deceived. Some of you have served in churches for decades. Some of you have served on staff in churches. Some of you have served as deacons and, and, and greeters in all kinds of ways. Some of you have done every job there is to do in a church, and you have never known the Son of God because you have been tricked. You have been deceived. You have been, you have been shown this element of Christianity that involves you still loving darkness. And there are many people, this is why Jesus says, why does the way that leads to destruction? And there are a whole bunch of people on it. Y'all, there's a whole bunch of people in church that are on that path too because they've been deceived. They've been tricked. And there are people in this room today and there are people joining us online. You still love darkness. You still love darkness. You have been tricked. You have been deceived. But it's good news what Christ has done. It's, it, the good news of all this is that Jesus has seen that darkness. And you want to know the thing that he did about that darkness? When, when Jesus surveyed our sickness, you want to know what, know what he did? He put on a body that was going to suffer in your place and did suffer in your place. That's what he did about it. That's what Christmas is. That, 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 that's the starting point of the whole deal of him putting on a body, willfully dethroning himself so that he could come down, put on a body, and suffer in your place. He did that in, in surveying your sin brokenness. That's what he did for you, dear friend. And he loves you. He was there at the beginning. This was, a pl this was the plan all along. And the offer before you today is to repent, to turn, and to trust him. And it has been the devil's plan in churches all over the place to paint a picture of Christianity that still involves loving darkness. It mixes darkness with light, and so many have bought it. And what I'm telling you is that in him is life. And it is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The light is shining in the darkness today, church. And some are repenting. They're turning from their darkness to go and face the light. But others will not. They continue to love their darkness instead of light, and they do not comprehend it. But here's a good news verse for you. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever forsakes them will have mercy. He who covers his sins will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So have you confessed your sin before God? Has church been a game that you have been playing? Or is it a true, authentic walk with God? Can you, like John, say that I know him? 
Is Jesus to you just a thing you do on the weekends? Is it just something that perhaps you've even neglected to do on the weekends? Or can you say like John, he is my logos. I know him personally. I know the sound of his voice. I know the things that he says and that doesn't say because I know him personally. And I also know him in the Greek sense that it makes order, perfect sense in order of all things. I understand creation through the sense that it was an orderful act, that he knew what he was doing. I understand all the, thing, when it, all the things that you see happening in the world. It makes sense because of this person of Christ. It's logic in order that happens because I know him and I know him personally. Would you stand with me as we come to the music and we all bow our heads to pray? Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would draw people unto yourself. Father, let this not be a place of deception, I pray. Oh God, we pray that you would take the blinders off what a waste, what an absolute waste if we just gather as a people, as a deceived people, having thought we knew something of the presence of God, having thought that we knew something of the forgiveness of the Son of God Himself. What a waste it would be for us just to gather and have a weekend activity that makes us feel a certain way without ever having come to truly know the Son of God, without having truly turned from darkness to face the light, to confess our sins, and to say that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm a sinner. To say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I trust in what You've done. I turn from my darkness. I turn around. I turn away. I forsake the sin. I forsake the darkness that I have mixed with light. I forsake the common notion of Christianity that mixes the two. I turn from it. God, forgive me of my sin. Father, I repent. I turn from it. I turn to trust you. I trust all in you for my righteousness. I trust in what it is that you came and accomplished. That Christmas when you dethroned yourself. I trust in that completed work that you carried out to the cross. That you carried out all the way through to your resurrection. I trust in that. I trust fully in that. Father, let it be the genuine prayer of the people of this church. Let it be the genuine, true, authentic faith that we witness to the world as we make Christ and His awesome, awesome, completed work and free gift of grace famous to everyone we know. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, it is Christmas time. Yes, we say Merry Christmas. Yes, the college students are back from school and we love seeing them. And yes, this is a wonderful time of year. No better way to make it the most wonderful than to know that you know that you are right before Almighty God all because of what Christ has done. 
These altars are always open. I'm always available to talk to you and to pray with you in that process. I love you enough to tell you the church. Let's sing the praises of our master.